Hear me? Yes. Good morning. If you have your Bibles, you can open up to Ezekiel chapter 11. Ezekiel chapter 11. Just a remark. Um, really appreciate the, not necessarily the music uh, or the guitar playing, piano play was, it was awesome. But um, just the sound of everybody singing out. It's really encouraging. Uh, there's far too many places that... Um, when it's time to worship the Lord in song and in music, uh, people tend to not raise their voice. And I don't quite understand that, especially coming from a musical, musical background. Uh, you know, as a people that have something to be joyful about, why would you not sing out? Why would you not sing out? And so as I was sitting there, I can hear the, the voices of all of you. And um, it's just kind of shakes the room, if you will. And uh, I think that's a testament to um, how good God is and the passion that most of us, hopefully all of us, feel uh, when, we, when we have the privilege of singing, uh, singing to his name. And so uh, I, I appreciate that because, like I said, I've been, I've been to many, many places and not necessarily preaching, just, you know, over the years and and we don't have that sometimes and and so it's good it's good to hear people worshiping and and, and crying out and, and singing with joy um, let's pray Lord thank you so much that you are wonderful Lord you are great you are excellent Lord Lord you are perfection and God we are so overwhelmed to be in your presence, Lord. I, I really am overwhelmed to be up here, Lord, that you would, you would consider me to deliver a word. Thank you so much, Lord. And I pray that you would speak through me, Lord. Open all of our hearts here this morning, Father. I pray that, that Lord, we would take what is going on this afternoon or tomorrow and toss it so that we might savor and see Jesus Christ, your Son, Lord. And I ask that for myself as well, Lord. Help us to understand what you have for us in your word, Lord. And, um, and I pray, Father God, that you would be exalted and glorified. Lord, that you would be high and lifted up. You are a great and mighty God, totally deserving of that. So, Lord, speak through me and I pray. Pray, Lord, that your presence would be palpable in this room this morning. Lord, we love you so much. Thank you for what you have done in sending your son to die a sinner's death, though he was perfect. Thank you so much for that, God. We praise your name this morning. We pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, we're going to look at Ezekiel uh, chapter 11, but only a, a piece of it, um, because... They're sort of um, they're, they're, so, they're sort of uh, 
you know, when you look at a passage, especially those of you who teach or preach, and you look at a passage and you say, oh, this is the point of it. This is what I'm going to talk about, and it makes a lot of sense, and there's great application involved. And then you get into it, and you're praying and everything, and, and the Lord is revealing something, and you're like, wait a minute, that passage actually is referring to something else, or there's so much more here. And so that's what happened to me over the last few weeks, or month, or so. And so we're going to look at, we're going to look at Ezekiel 11, and a couple of passages in 11, but I think like what I'm going to try to do, or hopefully I'm effective at this, is I'm going to take you from a passage in Ezekiel 11 and then bring you on a little bit of a process, a little bit of a journey, so that we can see and understand what the, what the point of the passage is and how, how does it affect us. All right, so Ezekiel chapter 11. Let's read 14 through 25. Ezekiel 11, 14 through 25. And the word of the Lord came to me, Son of man, your brothers, even your brothers, your kinsmen, the whole house of Israel, all of them, are those of whom the inhabitants of Jerusalem have said, Go far from the Lord. To us this land is given for a possession. Therefore say, Thus says the Lord God, Though I remove them far off among the nations, and though I scatter them among the countries, yet I have been a sanctuary to them for a while in the countries where they have gone. Therefore say, thus says the Lord God, I will gather you from the peoples and assemble you out of the countries where you have been scattered, and I will give you the land of Israel. And when they come there, they will remove all of its detestable things and all of its abominations. And I will give them one heart and a new spirit I will put, uh, and I will give them one heart, pardon me, and a new spirit I will put within them. I will remove their heart of stone from their flesh and give them a heart of flesh, that they may walk in my statutes and keep my rules and obey them. And they shall be my people and I will be their God. But as for those whose heart goes after their detestable things and their abominations, I will bring their deeds upon their own heads, declares the Lord God. I do want to read the end here. Then the cherubim lifted up their wings with the wheels beside them, and the glory of the God of Israel was over them. And the glory of the Lord went up from the midst of the city and stood on the mountain, that is, on the east side of the city. And the Spirit lifted me up and brought me in, in the vision by the Spirit of God into Chaldea, to the exiles. Then the vision that I had seen went up from me, and I told the exiles all the things that the Lord shown me. The end there is sad. You see the glory of the Lord departing and moving away from his people, from his sanctuary. Not forever, though. So, um, the text that I want to look at is in verses 17. Um, um, pardon me, verses 19. And I will give them one heart and a new spirit I will put within them. I will remove the heart of stone from their flesh and give them a heart of flesh that they may walk in my statutes and keep my rules and obey them. So have that in mind, removing the heart of stone and the Lord giving us a heart of flesh or giving them a heart of flesh. All right. So what is the point or the objective? I struggled with this, but I think I can narrow it down to two. The superiority of the new covenant versus the old covenant. Okay. Now, I know that we didn't really read about the New Covenant here, but we did. And I'll explain that. The superiority of the New Covenant to the Old Covenant. Number two, to implore believers 
to a, and I'm going to use this word, don't get freaked out, to a religion that is inward and is of the heart and not something that is carnal and outward. Okay? The visions that God has given Ezekiel, there's a purpose behind that. And that purpose is that the old way of doing things or the way that you Jewish people are currently doing things is not working. It's not working. And there will come a time where I will establish a new covenant. I will give you a new heart and a new spirit. And that heart of stone that's in your, that's within you, that heart of stone that is dead, I'm going to give you a heart of flesh. So I think for us, and if you follow me, I think for us, I think we have, I'm going to bash into something real quick. I think for us is what we have is a, a, um, an encouragement, an exhortation to, to make our relationship with God not something that is outward or material or physical so much. Sure, you can play a guitar and sing a song, okay? But something that is inward and of the heart, okay? See, because the new covenant is a covenant of what? Of grace and of spirituality, not a covenant of works and, and of doing, which is the old covenant. And so we're seeing that a little bit there at the be even just in this section, you see that. I'm going to take out the heart of stone and I'm going to give you a heart of flesh. You know, I'm going to do away with the old way of doing things and I'm going to do something new. And of course, I think you all know where that um, the arrival of that new covenant was the birth of Christ. Of course, there is other parts of that covenant that are yet to come. Let me give you some background on Ezekiel. It is a fascinating book, and I don't understand it totally, okay? I have like a decent grasp on the passage, I hope, because I'm up here. But, <laughs> you know, it is a fascinating book. Let me, hope, let me try to do this really, really briefly. Okay, here's the background of Ezekiel. It was written in like 593, 592, okay? Written by a man, uh, Ezekiel, the son of Buzi, okay? And, and it's, he, his name means strengthened by God. Ezekiel's name means strengthened by God. Um, so the exiles are in Babylon. They're in uh, an area of Babylon called Tel Aviv, okay? And we know this from previous chapters, that Jehoashin is carried away captive by the Babylonian king, okay? And, and, so, and so what we see here is that there is a besiege of the city of Jerusalem, okay? But it, it's not like it's like, oh, the, uh, Nebuchadnezzar hits, hits Jerusalem, d- uh, dismantles it, destroys it, and it carries it away within a few weeks. No, it's years. It's years, okay? So there is a process here. And at one point, a whole bunch of people, about 10,000 Jews, are carried in exile away with King Jehoiachin. Ezekiel is a part of that. Ezekiel goes and he starts to prophesy. He starts to tell the people visions that God has given him. Visions of like glory cards with wheels spinning and four posts and so on and so forth. Visions of what's happening in, the, in Jerusalem, in the very temple. And so the Lord is saying, Son of man, listen to me. I have called you to be a watchman. I want you to take this to the people, the exiles that are exiled. 
They are no longer in Jerusalem. They are carried away to another land. But I have a word for them. And I have visions for you. And so he says in earlier chapters, when I was beside the Chabar Canal, or the the River Chabar, that the Holy Spirit comes upon me, grabs him by a lock of his hair and picks him up. Ezekiel's maybe about 30 years old. That would make sense for a Levite priest, right? 30 years old is when they started their ministry. Some more sort of historical context. Israel fell to Assyria in 722 B.C., the northern kingdom, in 722 B.C. The southern kingdom, Judah, falls to Babylon in uh, 586 B.C. Okay? And we see they're, they're exiled. They're scattered. They're scattered abroad. Now, I, if I asked you a, a question and said, why did that happen? I think you could give me an answer. It's pretty obvious. Oh, God's a cruel God. No. 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 Mm-mm. In fact, God's a loving God. You're going to see that. It's part of the reason why they were exiled in the first place. No. Sin. It's that big three-letter word that we all struggle with on a daily basis, sin. Sin is why they were exiled. So, we have a long time before that, an exile uh, to, uh, from the Assyrians, the northern tribe. It, 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 it was talked about earlier on in Joshua. I'm going to read that in a little bit. That if you don't follow in my statutes, if you toss aside the covenant that I have given you, destruction is at hand. Destruction is at hand. But if you obey the covenant, right, if you walk in my statutes, there will be blessing. Well, of course, we know that the Jewish people did not walk according to the Lord's statutes. We know that the Jews were uh, bringing all kinds of detestable things into their city, intermingling their worship of the one true God with pagan worship, And God was not about to have that. And so they're exiled by Assyria in 722. And then, of course, the southern tribe is uh, the southern uh, portion of the city. Judah falls to Babylon in 586. So that's sort of where we're at. So when we read chapter 11, just so you guys understand where we are with some perspective, when you read that portion that we just read and God is saying, I'm going to take out their heart of stone and give them a heart of flesh, remember that in visions, God is revealing this to Ezekiel and then his 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 commandment is to take them to the exiles that are in settlements or colonies by a tributary of the Euphrates River in Babylon. Jeremiah is prophesying in Jerusalem around the same time. Ezekiel is exiled and he's by this little tributary with colonies of exiles. And the Lord is saying, you have a work to do there in Babylon. You have a work to do there in Babylon, Ezekiel. I I want you to tell the people that have been mocked and scorned, that have been made fun of, that have been called... um, Sinful, worthless Jews. That's why you're exiled. No, the Lord is saying, Ezekiel, I have a word for them. And I want to reveal that to you. So that's where we are in chapter 11. Okay? So when you see that there's this heart of stone, this heart of flesh, it's Ezekiel receiving that vision from the Lord and then 
telling it to the exiles there. God never left them or forsaken them. Never. I love that. You ask, why in the world would somebody need a heart of flesh? Why would you need a heart of flesh? Why did God say through Ezekiel that these people have a heart of stone, but I am one day going to give them a heart of flesh and a new spirit? Why would he say that? Let's move on to the next point. I want to go to chapter 8. This is, oh man, might be one of my, it's, it's an intense chapter in Ezekiel. It's super intense. Let's go to chapter 8. I'm going to read a couple verses, but then sort of just summarize what happens in the, in the chapter. In the sixth year, in the sixth month, on the fifth day of the month, as I sat in my house with the elders of Judah sitting before me, the hand of the Lord God fell upon me there. Then I looked, and behold, a form that had the appearance of a man. Below what appeared to be his waist was fire, and above his waist was something like the appearance of brightness, like gleaming metal. He put out the form of a hand and took me by a lock of my head. And the Spirit lifted me up between earth and heaven and brought me in visions of God to Jerusalem. Okay. So, Ezekiel is in his home. The Lord God comes and pulls him by a lock of the hair. I don't even know what really that means. But he pulls him by a lock of the hair. He brings him in visions to Jerusalem. To the city of Jerusalem. Now, if you're heading in your my, heading in my Bible says abominations in the temple, so there are four major four abominations that we read about in the temple going on in real time that Ezekiel has a divine picture of. He has an ability by means of the Lord to see what is going on in real time in Jerusalem, not in some pagan city or some Babylonian city. No, in Jerusalem. In fact, not just in Jerusalem, but on the temple, Mount. And there's four abominations that the Lord reveals to Ezekiel. So remember, what was the last thing that I had mentioned? Why would they need a heart of flesh? Here's some context. Abomination number one. Verse three brought me in visions of God to Jerusalem, to the entrance of the gateway of the inner court that faces north, where was the seat of the image of jealousy, which provokes to jealousy. And behold, the glory of the God of Israel was there, like the vision that I saw in the valley. Then he said to me, Son of man, lift up your eyes toward the north. So I lifted my eyes toward the north, and behold, north of the altar gate, in the entrance, was this image of jealousy. And he said to me, Son of man, do you see what they are doing? The great abominations that the house of Israel are committing there, here to drive me far from my sanctuary, but you will see even greater abominations. So, in the courtyard of the temple, you have an image or an idol there. The idol that provokes the Lord God to jealousy. And I don't have time to get into what that means, but essentially this is what's happening. Men, per perhaps women, are worshiping an idol right around the temple. And the Lord says to Ezekiel, Son of man, 
you will see even greater abominations. Let's move on. Then he said, Son of man, um, and, he, and he brought me, verse 7, and he brought me to the entrance of the court. And when I looked, behold, there was a hole in the wall. Then he said to me, Son of man, dig in the wall. So I dug in the wall, and behold, there was an entrance. And he said, go in and see the vile abominations that are committing here. I, 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 can't, I don't have time to read all that. But essentially, this is the second abomination. He digs through the wall. That is on the side of the temple. I wish I had a map or a picture. I, I usually I have this when I've done this before. But essentially, he says, Son of man, I'll dig through this hole in the wall. And when he digs through this hole in the wall, he goes into a place of secrecy. He goes to a place of, 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 um, of worship and of, of sinfulness, of utter vile sinfulness underground, in the walls. I mean, imagine almost a cavernous, dark type of place and there are people in there that are worshipping carved images on the wall that are creeping things and abominable things, probably some sort of Egyptian or pagan idolatry uh, uh, form of worship. And so he says, son of man, do you see that? Do you see what they're doing in secret? Do you see what they're doing in secret, son of man? They think that I don't see them. But I do. But you will see even greater abominations. The next part, 14. Verse 14, Then he brought me to the entrance of the north gate of the house of the Lord, and behold, there sat women weeping for Tammuz. Then he said to me, Have you seen this, O son of man? You will see even greater abominations. Tammuz was a, a god that did not obviously really exist. Tammuz died every year. When Tammuz died, people would go into weeping for Tammuz to come back again the following year. And what would happen during this time of mourning for this fake god called Tammuz is it would be accompanied by all kinds of vile activity that you might imagine. Alcohol. Uh, sexual immorality, worshiping and sacrificing of things that were dishonorable. And he says, Son of man, you will see even greater abominations than that. And the last and final abomination is he brings him close to the portico of the temple. And you have the altar here, and you have the portico of the temple, and then you walk in and there's the holy place and then the veil in the most holy place. The portico or the, the altar faces east toward like the Mount of Olives, the Kidron Valley. You've seen that on maps, I hope. Here is west where the Holy of Holies is. And there are 25 elders bowing down and worshiping the sun. Bowing down and worshiping the sun. Backs to the Holy of Holies backs to the very presence of Yahweh and instead substituting worshiping of the Son. The greatest insult possible. And the Lord says to Ezekiel, is it no small thing for me to be disgusted by that? To be angry? You know, we hear, you've all heard the, the four abominations, right? 
say, okay, the, the God of Tammuz, digging through the wall and, 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 and worshiping creeping things. And, and imagine like hieroglyphics, right? And little alligator-shaped you know, species. Who knows what the heck they were thinking. But worshiping to them and performing really unsightly, disgusting things all the while. Taking the God, the God that brought them with a strong and mighty hand out of Egypt, the Ho- Jehovah, the only God that exists, and saying, we have come so far because of our sin that we prefer in the present, in Jerusalem, we prefer to worship the sun. Now, you and I might look at each other and say, how could you ever do that? How could you ever do that? And I don't know about you. I've never worshipped the sun. I've been thankful for the sun at times. All right? I've never worshipped the sun. I've never worshipped hieroglyphics. Listen, I never wept over a Roman or a Greek god that no longer exists. I've never wept when I've seen a constellation and said, oh my goodness, the constellation went away because of the clouds and I can't see it anymore. And it's so saddening and disheartening. I've never... However, I have put idols in my life. Have you? Have you put idols in your life? Have you placed anything before your almighty Savior? Because if you have then we should be crying out and you should be crying out for a heart of flesh. So why do the people need a heart of flesh? Because the old system of doing things did not bring about righteousness. It was impossible for it to bring about righteousness. And what happened was people just progressively went further and further and further, further into sin to the point where they insulted mocked and dishonored the very God that took them out of the land of uh, of slavery in Egypt in the first place. And now they're exiled by the river Chabar in Babylon. And God is saying to Ezekiel, Son of man, prophesy to them because they have a heart of stone right now, but one day I will bring them a heart of flesh. I will give them a heart of flesh and a new spirit. Turn with me to Joshua 23. Verse 14. This is long before what we just read. Let's just go to 16 for the sake of time. Joshua 23, verse 16. Look what the Lord says here, many, many years prior, in verse 16. If you transgress the covenant of the Lord your God, which he commanded you, and go and serve other gods and bow down to them. I suppose we should read 15. But just as all the good things that the Lord your God promised concerning you have been fulfilled for you, so the Lord will bring upon you all the evil things until he has destroyed you from off this good land that the Lord your God has given you, if you transgress the covenant of the Lord your God. And he warned them long before, brothers and sisters, he warned the Jews long before, if you transgress the covenant that I have given you, destruction is at hand. Turn with me to 
Second Kings 17. More warning here. Second Kings 17 and verse 7. Speaks of the exile. And look at what verse 7 says. And this occurred because the people of Israel had sinned against the Lord their God, who had brought them up out of the land of Egypt from under the hand of Pharaoh, king of Egypt, and had feared other gods, and walked in the customs of the nations whom the Lord drove out before the people of Israel, and in the customs that the kings of Israel had practiced. Verse 9. And the people of Israel did secretly against the Lord their God things that were not right. They built for themselves high places in all their towns, from watchtower to fortified city, so on and so forth. There's an explanation right there for why the Jews were exiled. It's very black and white right there. They had raised up high places. They had raised up idols in their lives. They had said, God, you are not good enough. You don't satisfy me enough, Lord. I'm going to go over here. So why were they exiled? Sin. Why did they need a heart of flesh? Sin. Briefly, what does a new heart and a new spirit look like? It's real simple. I was hoping that the Greek would reveal something like amazing and it just didn't. When, when, when the New Testament talks about the heart of flesh, and even the Hebrew talks about the heart of flesh in, in Ezekiel, it just means flesh. It means like human flesh. Well, let me tell you something about human flesh that probably is going to like blow your mind. It's made of cells. Cells are living, right? They split by means of mitosis. Like, like it's living. It's living. Stone is not living. I have to tell that to my students all the time. Listen, there's nothing living about this piece of granite. If you have a heart of stone inside of you right now, it's not living. Okay, think spiritually for a minute, not so physically, okay? That, that you, you understand where I know your heart is beating right now. Otherwise, we'd be pulling you out on a gurney. <laughs> so, so I, like, but think on a spiritual level right now. A heart of stone is non-living. A heart of stone cannot serve God. A heart of stone cannot minister. A heart of stone cannot sing loudly and joyfully recognize that a Savior has come into my life and changed me. A heart of stone can't do that. It's dead. A heart of flesh can. Because flesh is living. That's what God said. He said, I'm going to give you a heart of flesh. I'm going to give you a new spirit. Why? Because your heart of flesh and your new spirit is going to be capable of serving me, loving me. It's going to be capable, the heart of flesh is capable of recognizing our sinful stature. Therefore, we fall on our feet to Jesus. Our stone doesn't feel that. A dead body doesn't feel that. A rock doesn't feel that. Great. So let's move on. You, the Jews, have been promised a heart of flesh, a new spirit. Big deal. 
What, what does that mean exactly? What does that mean? Well, I think this is where we come to the new covenant. I think what happens here is we see that it is representative of a new and better covenant. I was so thankful for the brother that this morning that read from, from Hebrews. Because if you read Hebrews 8 through 10, you will see the new covenant contrasted with the old covenant. You will see that the new covenant is far superior than the old covenant. You will see that the high priest that enacts uh, gifts and sacrifices is far superior than the high priest of the old covenant. So briefly, let me contrast the old and the new covenant for you. Back and forth. Here's the deal. The old covenant. You know the, 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 the Hebrew word for atonement is, is, is a kafar or something like that. It is merely a covering. It is merely a covering. Your sins were atoned for. If you were a Jew back during that time, your sins were atoned for. One day a year on the Day of Atonement, the, 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 the high priest would go in with blood. Obviously, there always has to be blood because without the shedding of blood, there is no what? Remission of sins. So the, the high priest would go in with the blood. And if and when the high priest exited and came out, the people, though they might have been far off or they sat there, depending on the tribe, would say, sins are atoned for. Thank God, let's go back to work. Then that would happen again in another year. How, you tell me, how can that bring about righteousness? What does that do in the heart of an individual for, for, for causing them to say, like, I sinned and, and, and there needs to be something that has changed? Why? Because they're relying on the high priest to do that once a year. And what did the people know intellectually, the Jews? The Jews knew intellectually this. That if I abide by the rituals and the law, I'm going to be blessed. Simply put. And the Jews knew if I did not abide by those rituals, if, if I didn't do what was ceremonially correct or clean, then I could be cursed. It's an intellectual thing. Why do you not go to work and, and uh, you know, uh, gossip about, about this person or that person? Why, why, why do you refrain from alcohol if you do in drunkenness? Well, I hope that it is not merely because you recognize that it's in the Bible and it's wrong. There's the problem. I mean, that is the whole point of Hebrews 8 through 11. Is the writer of Hebrews is imploring those that are listening to say, don't go back to that way. It does not do anything effective. It just gives you what? What does it really do? It gives you the knowledge that you're sinful. That's all it does. It gives you the knowledge that you're sinful and that you're a sinner. The old covenant utilized animal blood. The new covenant utilized what? The blood of Christ. Animals didn't know they were about to be sacrificed. <laughs> yeah, all right, that heifer looks, looks nice. No blemish. Sacrifice that one. Pretty sure that goat or whatever didn't realize, geez, I'm about to make atonement. No. But Hebrews says, of his own volition, Christ came. Christ went to the cross, shed his own blood. It's annually a reminder of sin, the Old Covenant. The New Covenant is a perfect conscience under grace. 
God is at a distance. We heard that in the Old Covenant. God is at a distance. You couldn't go into the Holy of Holies. Listen, unless you were a Levite, and, and I, don't understand, I don't know, you know, maybe you're in a certain line, in, in a certain genealogy, you could go into the Holy of Holies, right? But everybody else is at a distance from, the, from, from, from God's presence. We, in this room, are under a better covenant. We could see Christ without that veil, without that wall. We can come directly into the presence of God because of Jesus. That, that, yeah, that, 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 is a, um, that is a truth that should, that should uh, ca- cause you to worship. The old covenant was conditional. It was based on what you did. The new covenant is unconditional. It's based on what Christ did. Imagine that. Imagine if the new covenant was based on something that you did. We would fail. We'd be right in the same place that the Jews were in. The old covenant was temporal. The new covenant is eternal. The old covenant was external. The new covenant is internal. The old covenant cannot, hear this, the old covenant cannot impute righteousness onto you. That's an impossibility. The new covenant under Christ Jesus, because of his sacrifice and because of that doctrine of justification, we take on the righteousness of Christ and we stand acquitted in front of a perfect, holy God because of Christ. You and I have done nothing. Seriously, you and I... I, Guys, you want me to be candid with you? I deserved death a long time ago. Seriously. Yeah, I could play a song or something, you know, and lead a few people in worship. But let me tell you something. I deserved death a long time ago. So the fact that one day, oh man, I love this. We sang my grandfather's favorite song earlier. One day, I get to be with Christ. One day... You and I, when we close our eyes, are going to be in paradise? You did nothing to accomplish that. I did nothing to accomplish that. Nothing. What does it cause us to do? I hope it causes you to worship, and I hope it causes you to tell others about the same reality of that truth that the Lord Jesus Christ has set you free. You've done nothing. I'm sorry if that offends some of you. Why is this important that we have been recipients or beneficiaries of the new covenant? I want to make something clear. The new covenant primarily is for the Jews. We see that in Ezekiel 36, we see that in Jeremiah 31, and we see it also in uh, Ezekiel 11. Okay, primarily the new covenant was for the Jews. There will be one day where the total fulfillment of the new covenant is set. That would be at that's the second advent of Christ of Christ when he comes again. The millennial kingdom will have promises for the Jews. But we are beneficiaries of that new covenant. There are spiritual application and blessings for the Gentiles, for Christians. And that's incredible. So, because that's incredible, because there's a benefit, 
because we have been changed, we have been washed, sprinkled, clean. You know, the Bible often talks about you being washed by the blood, being sprinkled. It's, only, it's, it's, it's this idea, metaphorically, of a bath. What happens if you go out and you roll around the mud? Well, you got to get clean. You go and take a bath. You wash yourself of that. That's, that's, what, that's what Christ has done for us. Washed you clean. Lastly, what should we do with this? Because you benefit from the new covenant, right? That, that's like an understatement. That's a massive understatement. You benefit. Listen, it changed your life. Your trajectory was hell. <laughs> and because of Christ, it is now heaven in paradise with God one day. So what should you do with it? Let's turn. We're just about done to 2 Corinthians 3. 2 Corinthians 3. Paul talks about in 2 Corinthians 3 the the, uh, the, the old and the new covenant here. Go to 312. It's very simple. What should we do knowing now that we have a heart of flesh, that we have been indwelt by the Holy Spirit? Has, now, let me ask you something. We, we understand we saw the new, the new spirit that, that, and the new heart of flesh that the Jews will, excuse me, the Jews will indeed experience one day. Okay? But don't you and I have a new spirit? I mean, I'm pretty certain that 2 Corinthians 5 says, If any man is in Christ, he is a new creation. Old things have passed away. Behold, all things are new. The Holy Spirit, the Holy Spirit indwells me. Something to rejoice over. So what does Paul say in 2 Corinthians 3.12? Since we have such a hope, we are very bold. What does he mean by we are very bold? We are very bold to do what? To talk about it. You're very bold to do what? To talk about it. Lastly, we can end with this. 4.16. So, we do not lose heart. Though our outer self is wasting away, our inner self is being renewed day by day. For this light momentary affliction is preparing for us an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison. As we look not to the things that are seen, but to the things that are unseen. For the things that are seen are transient, but the things that are unseen are eternal. The death of Christ, hear me. The death and resurrection of Christ the new and better covenant with a superior high priest has given you and I a heart of flesh. Not, as Hebrew says, a message written on tablets of stone, which are what? Dead. The gospel of Jesus Christ should not be engraved on some spectacular-looking stone structure written so that people can walk by and say, what is that? Oh, that's the gospel of Christ. I want to be, I want to be uh, converted. 
Oh, the gospel of Christ is, the gospel is written on your hearts. That's what it says in Hebrews. That's not what I said. And so our lives, our lives, and the way that we live is one of the ways, is the way that that gospel spreads. Because the the structure with the stone tablets and the things written engraved on it will waste away. But see, the way you and I live and the way that we operate and behave in this world with that heart of flesh, taking that message of the good news, the gospel, to others, that's eternal. The old covenant is passing away, is passed away. The new covenant is eternal. And guys, we have been beneficiaries of that. We have been receivers of that new covenant because of what Christ has done. So what's the point of Ezekiel 11? Well, I I suppose for the Jews, it does promise them a future time where there will be complete restoration and a return to, to, to Israel or to the homeland. But I think for us as Christians... It, it, it's really a message of a spiritual inward commitment to serving Christ, not making our faith outward and material, because that gets nowhere, as we saw in the Old Testament. Let's pray. Lord, thank you so much for your word. Thank you, God, that um, your word is, is, is so complex, Lord. But the message of the gospel is quite simple, that Christ died for an ungodly generation, for an ungodly race, for an ungodly people. Lord, we know that your word says that if anybody is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has passed away, and behold, all things are new. Thank you, God, for making me a new creation. Thank you for making many of us, hopefully all of us in this room, a new creation, Father. And I pray that if there's anybody in this room, Father, that is questioning Uh, what this book talks about, Lord, that you would draw them. Pray, Lord, that we would plant seeds. Lord, that we would live lives that are honoring to you so that people would be drawn to Christ. Thank you again for your awesome word, Lord. In Jesus' name, amen.